Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Today is May 20th, 2015. This podcast series is a product of the Committee on International Environmental Law of the American branch of the International Law Association. My name is Mayanna Dellinger. I will assume a position as Associate Professor of Law for the University of South Dakota School of Law starting in August 2015. I also research and write on issues of national and international environmental law and how these issues intersect with various business aspects. Today, it's my very great honor and pleasure to host Michael Gerard, the Andrew Sabin Professor of Professional Practice and the Director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia Law School in New York City. Professor Gerard is a world-renowned expert on environmental law and in particular climate change law. This brief introduction will truly not do him justice, but for those listeners around the world who may not know him, a few highlights will have to do here. Professor Gerard was the managing partner of a 110-lawyer law office where he tried numerous cases and argued many appeals in the federal and state courts and administrative tribunals. He's the most prolific writer on environmental law in the United States. Based on 4,000 questionnaires, Legal Media Group's Guide to the World's Leading Environmental Lawyers reported that Professor Michael Gerard received more personal nominations for this guide than any other lawyer in the world. Professor Gerard has consistently been ranked as either the single leading environmental lawyer in New York or as tied for first. His work as the director of the Center for Climate Change Law is noted around the nation, if not the world. Professor Gerard was one of 13 experts contributing to the recent formulation of the Oslo Principles on Global Climate Change Obligations. Professor Gerard, welcome. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time to talk to our listeners around the world about the so-called Oslo Principles. Can you elaborate a little bit about um, what these are? Yes, yeah, so it was a group that assembled several years ago of judges, professors, uh, and others to try to look at the existing body of international law and come up with a set of principles that can be gleaned from that, principles that, uh, based on existing international law, govern uh, the conduct of, of governments and of private enterprises in uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and coping with climate change. Great. And um, are these uh, principles, I suppose, since they're called principles, they're law more laudatory in, nation, in nature, rather, or are they of a legally binding nature? Well, as they are now, they are certainly not legally binding. We are right. hoping that some courts around the world will adopt them or will issue decisions that draw from them, but they are not now binding. Right. Um, and you mentioned the target actors, if you will, being uh, governments, but also companies. And I think uh, listeners might find that interesting. Can you elaborate on what do you mean by um, enterprises, as it's called in the principles? So companies, um, how large, for instance, should they be to fall under the principles? And why do you, um, in somewhat of a new uh, take, I suppose, address companies in particular? That I think hasn't been seen a lot in the past. Because most of the direct emitters of greenhouse gases are private companies, uh, you know, the most importantly in the electric power sector, which is the, which is a very large source of greenhouse gases, but also companies in many other industrial and transport sectors. Uh, we think that it's necessary that they take on the obligation to control their greenhouse gas emissions in order for this to be effective. Governments themselves 
for the most part, have relatively smaller emissions. It's mostly uh, private companies that have larger direct emissions. Interesting. So you're looking at it as sort of who the direct actors are uh, rather than who should be maybe responsible for taking top-down regulatory action over those entities? Well, we're looking at both. We want governments to um, take top-down actions, but uh, even if they don't, we think that um, you know the large private emitters should be uh, acting on their own. Right, so both a bottom-up and a top-down approach. Are the uh, companies receptive towards that, or have you heard from any of those how they're receiving these principles? No, the principles just came out very recently, and we have not heard feedback from uh, companies about about that. Right, right. What is your general sense, though, of how companies might be looking at this issue? I think that a lot of companies, uh, you know, want to follow the law but not go much beyond the law. Right. They are in a competitive environment, and um, and it is uh, sometimes difficult, it's usually difficult to persuade companies to undertake major expenditures that uh, neither lead to direct profits or are clearly mandated by the law. Right, right. Although at the same time, some are taking uh, somewhat of voluntary action. Walmart, for instance, is uh, doing some things. Apple computers are, are installing a lot of uh, renewable energy centers. So some are taking at least some voluntary action. So maybe there is some hope uh, yep. from that front. Which is, which is terrific. Uh, and we hope that uh, those, those voluntary measures are extremely important. And we hope that that is a precedent for what many other companies are doing. Right, so right. Such large and successful enterprises as Walmart and, and Apple uh, do this. Yeah. They can really be right, right. Yep. That certainly is a, a new and, and good thing. Um, so back to the principles again. Uh, they shouldn't be seen by people around the world or in this country to, so, to, uh, so to speak, supersede the Kyoto Protocol. You see them more of a different nature, obviously. Oh, they're entirely different. The, the, I, the Kyoto Protocol was a an agreement signed by many, but not all, countries in which they made specific commitments uh, to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions uh, through um, essentially a treaty. Uh, mm -hmm. This is not at all like that. Uh, this is designed to be um, a guidance that will be used by judges and lawyers around the world and seeing what the existing law is. Yeah, right. Um, is the UNFCCC, though, so-called the um, only game in town, as it's been called? Um, in other words, how do you see these principles being able to, I know you're saying they're uh, more of a voluntary nature, but still uh, you're trying to create or you have created another competing framework in one way. Uh, do you see any interaction there, interface or competition, or, or how do you see the two uh, regimes potentially working together? Well, they're certainly not competing. Uh, they're trying to accomplish different things. Mm -hmm. But had the Kyoto Protocol and the UNFCCC process succeeded in their objectives of leading, leading to a major mm -hmm. decrease in greenhouse gas emissions, uh, the Oslo principles would not be necessary. Right. The Oslo principles are in part a reaction to the, the failure of the existing international treaty regime to achieve the necessary reductions. Right. How do you think, though, or why might these principles prevail when the Kyoto Protocol didn't create sufficient legal or on-the-ground change? Well, in in some countries of the world, there are uh, court systems that are very powerful and that uh, have uh, 
shown a willingness to adopt rules, substantive rules, uh, uh, not based not based directly on statutes, uh, but on um, overarching legal principles. Um, and we are hoping that in those countries, those kinds of actions will be taken by the courts here. You know, we're under no illusion that the Oslo principles are going to solve the global climate change problem, but we hope that they make a real contribution, just as we hope that the UNFCCC process, uh, you know, moves forward, that it, uh, that it makes great progress in Paris in December, and that it achieves uh, a great deal. Right. Um, and do you think it will in December? What do you think is going to happen with those negotiations? Well, I think most people think that what will happen out of Paris is that um, most or virtually all of the countries of the world will put forward these voluntary pledges for how much they're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that those voluntary pledges, when headed up, um, take us to a pathway for an increase in global average temperatures of about three degrees Celsius above pre-industrial conditions. Mm -hmm. Of course, the UN agreement is that two degrees mm -hmm. is the maximum tolerable. Um, three degrees is nowhere close. So three degrees is better than the five or six degree pathway that we're now on. But I think everyone recognizes that uh, Paris is not the end, that, that uh, hopefully uh, after Paris there will be continual increases in the ambition to get us closer to a two-degree pathway. Right. And so, yeah, we're throwing out these different uh, uh, temperature goals oftentimes, or uh, scientists are and experts such as yourself. But do you think... Is it in a way already too late? You yourself mentioned that experts have already said that we're already on the pathway towards a five degrees Celsius increase or even more. Is it in a way all hopeless? Is it too late to even, you know, sort of do anything at all? Or <laughs> or do you still think that's... No, by no means. Yeah. Uh, what we do now will have a major impact on what happens around the world in the latter part of the 20th century. It is, it is clearly too late to avoid bad things happening from climate change, but mm -hmm. it is by no means to avoid the worst things happening. So it, it, it's a question of how how much can we reduce the hardship, the, the misery, the ecological degradation, and that will result from climate change. Right. And to a large extent, this has been seen as being somewhat of a, a problem of understanding or a cognitive problem. Why do you think that um, a lot of government leaders and their peoples and businesses continue to fail to understand or appreciate the um, urgency of this situation, given all the knowledge that we have these days? Well, there are a lot of economic interests uh, who don't want there to be widespread understanding of this because they are uh, they are hurt by widespread understanding. Mm -hmm. So the coal industry in particular... Uh, doesn't want people to understand climate change because if they do, they will uh, greatly reduce coal use. Uh, you know, other some other industries are like that. So that's one important element of it. Another is that in some countries, uh, especially uh, the U.S. and to a somewhat lesser extent Australia, there are ideological forces that don't like government. They don't like more government, and if you believe that climate change is really happening and is a threat, it's almost inevitable that that, that needs more government in, in certain areas. And there are some religious sentiments that God wouldn't let this happen or that it's beyond human control. 
people. So there are a whole host of factors that are adding up together to make not as many people understand the science of climate change as as we would as would be ideal. Vested interests in in denying the knowledge, so that still is going on, in your opinion, huh? Hopefully that'll change. Um, yeah. Right, right. It's, it's much more of it in the U.S. than there is in most of the rest of the world, and, and really there wasn't as much of it in the U.S. until about mm. 2010 when the opponents of climate regulation have very effectively mobilized and put out this false narrative that climate science, climate science is not uh, genuine. Right, right. Climate gate and other scandals like that. Speaking of uh, monetary issues, in the principles it's mentioned, uh, the ideal rather is mentioned that action should be taken without regard to cost, um, especially if uh, greenhouse gas emissions reductions will be offset by future savings. Uh, but isn't cost and money what you think ultimately will be driving action or non-action uh, at both the uh, corporate and governance levels? It, obviously, cost is a central factor in decision making. But the decision making today to, uh, only considers one side of the ledger. It tends to consider the uh, the cost of implementing the control. It does not consider the benefit. Um, uh, one of the benefits, of course, is the avoided massive costs of climate change itself. Another one of the benefits tends to be that the money that goes into fighting climate change doesn't disappear down a hole. It is utilized for, for purposes. It, it itself creates jobs and has a multiplier effect. So a full economic analysis would tend to show that these are positive actions from a, a global uh, economic perspective. Right. At the same time, the principles also mention uh, or include the statement that all states and companies must reduce their greenhouse gas emissions if they can do so without relevant costs. Um, so how do you harmonize statements like that? And also, how do you see these monetary issues relating to the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities? So throughout the possible principles is the notion that it's the... Uh, the that the countries that have sort of more than the average global emissions have a particular responsibility to reduce their greenhouse gases. And uh, the, the poorest countries um, uh, do not have the same obligation. If they can reduce their emissions without cost or if somebody else will subsidize it, uh, then they need to do that. But it is really the, uh, the, the, the countries that have the larger emissions that have the principal responsibility here, and that is the essence of common but differentiated responsibility. Yes. Uh, everybody has some responsibility, but it's much greater for the countries, the, the larger emitters. And when you're talking about reductions, are you talking total uh, uh, total limits, or what about the notion of applying per capita limits? So, the per capita idea is embodied in the, in the idea that it's the, it's the countries with the with high per capita emissions that um, that have the most uh, serious obligation to reduce their emissions going forward. Do you think that, you know, would you um, encourage that to be uh, the binding principle, or are you personally more uh, in favor of a total limit on each nation? Well, but, but the uh, question is, what is the limit uh, for each nation? And there are various factors that go into it, but per capita emissions is a very important factor. So right, so India has um, 
you know, significant emissions, but it, it, it's an enormously populous country, and their per capita emissions are quite low. So, Professor Gerard, about the legal mandates, um, it's said in the principles that sources requiring states and companies to fulfill the principles derive from, among other things, international human rights law, environmental law, and tort law. Can you elaborate on that? So, for many, many years, uh, the law has developed sometimes from judges, sometimes from international organizations establishing various bedrock principles. One of the bedrock principles the principle against transboundary pollution is that the pollution from one state cannot injure another state. Um, and that is violated by greenhouse gas emissions. There are also international human rights principles that are almost universally recognized that people have a right uh, uh, to life, to, to, to water, to certain kinds of liberty, to, uh, to dignity. And these two are are breached by greenhouse gases that lead to um, tremendous degrees of, of hardship. Um, the UNFCCC process has led to international uh, principles against dangerous human-caused interference with the climate system, but we are seeing that happen. So the accumulation of all of the established principles of international law from multiple sources lead to the Oslo principles, which try to summarize them, bring them together, and apply them to the problem of climate change. Great. And so I think a lot of people will recognize that even though there is law in place, uh, law may be nothing without enforcement, as it's said. Um, what are some pot potential repercussions in this area for non-compliance of these underlying legal mandates? So that will depend on the domestic courts. There, there are not really international legal tribunals that have the jurisdiction to handle this kind of case so far. Um, uh, but we are hoping that the, the national court, courts of various countries will adopt this and, uh, and begin issuing um, you know, injunction, injunctions, compulsory orders uh, to, uh, on, on companies to, and governments to take actions to reduce emissions. What about uh, monetary damages claims? Do you encourage nations to take uh, to award that to potential um, injured parties? Well, we are not including that as a principle. So that raises a whole set of additional issues, um, and the focus here is on trying to reduce emissions to reduce mm -hmm. uh, the future harm that's done. Mm -hmm. To stop the the action. Um, great. So uh, it seems that the principles uh, encourage public participation. Uh, for instance, it's mentioned that there should be transparency in the conduct of all actors in implementing the principles. Can you elaborate a little bit on what is meant by that and uh, how you see public participation helping in this area and how do you think companies will react to this? Well, uh, generally decisions on large issues of public policy that are made with the benefit of full public debate and dialogue and information are sounder than those made by a few people sitting in a room. Um, and so there are additional overarching principles of national law that cause for, that call for uh, openness and transparency. So uh, we are, we are not hoping that a government will on its own unilaterally without blaming anybody in advance issue decrees, uh, you know, significantly affecting a lot of 
enterprises and individuals. We think that there should be, you know, a, a process in which people have a chance to consider proposals and comment on them, and that those comments, that participation be considered by the uh, entities actually making the final decisions. And that may t- tie into another statement in the principles that uh, that says that we actually all, so all the general public, um, we're all guardians and trustees of the earth to preserve, protect, and sustain the biosphere and the full diversity of life within it. Um, so you cite directly to that in the principles. That, though, also rings similar to uh, the atmospheric trust litigation theory and other public trust theories that have been advanced by, for example, um, Oregon-based law professors Mary Wood and Michael Bloom. Uh, but courts, at least in the United States, have not yet so widely adopted uh, these notions. Do you think that there's hope that they will see this problem from from that point of view, or at least give some weight to that line of thinking? I don't think that the prospects in the United States courts are very bright on this sort of thing, and the, the principal reason um, is that in the in 2011, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a decision in a case called American Electric Power versus Connecticut, in which uh, various states were seeking, were asking the federal courts to order certain coal-fired power plants to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The Supreme Court said that uh, you know, Congress in 1990 passed the Clean Air Act that gave EPA the power to regulate air pollution. So the Supreme Court in 2007 said that includes greenhouse gases. And so the, the power to determine permissible levels of greenhouse gases in the United States has been given to EPA. It's not for the courts to step in and make up their own rules. Um, and so that's the principal reason and associated doctrines about the separation of powers are the principal reasons why the lawsuits in the U.S. seeking to use common law theories uh, to judge make the rules have not succeeded. Uh, but that's just the U.S. There are lots of other countries that don't have the same kind of doctrines and where this sort of, ar- this sort of argument might have more traction. So as you see it um, in this country, at least in the United States, that is uh, public participation and advancing uh, sort of the general population's interest in this issue is better, uh, or the ultimate goal is better served by relying still on hard law notions such as uh, those different rules promulgated by, by Congress and the EPA and so forth, and not so much through the softer law instruments? Yeah, I, I don't think that these common law principles um, you know, have gotten or, or are likely in the foreseeable future to get very far in the U.S. And so I think citizen action in the U.S. is more effectively deployed um, at the government and, uh, and also to the company. You know, the, the single biggest impediment to climate action in the United States today mm-hmm. is Congress, uh, which is uh, fighting back at uh, all of President Obama's steps to take action on climate change. And so I think political action aimed at Congress is central to what we need to do in the U.S. Professor Girard, finally, climate change has rightly been called a super-wicked problem. Um, what do you think will happen legislatively and politically about this? In other words, do you still have hope that something can and will be done in time, um, even in the recalcitrant United States? I do think that the political system will, will change. I think that more and more people are understanding the reality and the gravity of the climate change problem. It won't happen in this Congress. Uh, 
but I am hopeful that in Congress is to come, um, that uh, uh, that the members uh, will, will see the light, and those who don't see the light will be replaced by, by others who do. Let's hope that that will be the case indeed. Thank you so much, Professor Gerard, for your time. Thank you. This was an interview of Professor Michael Gerard, one of 13 experts contributing to the recent formulation of the Oslo Principles on Global Climate Change Obligations. This is part one of a two-part series on the Oslo Principles. Tune in next time for Professor Philip Sutherland of the Stellenbosch University Faculty of Law in South Africa.